Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Jeff Gorman and I sit down today with Nick Mosey of Mosey's Production Machinist in Anaheim, California. By the way, kudos to any shop there operating in California. The regulations in the state would make me pull my hair out. Anyways, Nick and I had a conversation a few weeks back about how to reduce accounts receivables. And after some great discussion, we agreed to have Nick come on the podcast so that some of his other questions could be captured for you. We touch upon a really wide variety of topics, including how to prioritize payables, why you should always have a line of credit at a bank, even if you don't use it, and if you do, how to use it. How pricing algorithms can be designed to automatically adjust pricing for new prospects. Hint, the price goes up. Why profits are essential for growth. And how Mosey's raised prices last year. The technique that made it easy for their customers to swallow a significant increase. Plus, lots more. Let's do it. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me this morning. Good to see you, Jeff. Good to see you as well, Jay. Nick, thanks for hopping on. Been a while since we last spoke, but seems like things are flying in the right direction over at Mosey. So pleasure to have you on and good to catch up. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Good to talk to you again. Nick and I had a conversation a few weeks ago. Nick and I talked a few weeks ago and Nick had some questions on how to bring down their accounts payable and really make sure that they were getting the money as fast as they could. We had a great conversation. We may touch upon some of those things, but towards the end, we were chatting and they have been growing the last few years. And Nick threw out the concept, is there too much growth? Can you grow too fast? And to me, that's a really fascinating topic. It involves a lot of control at the quoting stage to make sure that you do grow at the right rate for your shop. And so I thought it would be of interest to the wider audience of the Job Shop Show and capture this conversation. And I always like talking to a shop owner who's in the thick of it right now, because sometimes you forget the questions and assumptions that are made as you're going through this sort of thinking. Probably the best way to start is, Nick, maybe you could give us a thumbnail sketch of yourself and your shop. All right. So we're at Mosey's Production Machinists. My name is Nick. I am the CFO, third generation. My grandfather started the business in 1975. My dad has been the president for the past 40 some years. So I handle the finance side. So I am not a shop guy, but I'll do my best to explain kind of what we do. We do CNC milling, turning, some Swiss machining. We have 10 CNC mills, six CNC lathes. We have two large FMS cells. We generally do parts for commercial aviation aerospace right now. That's that's a large chunk of our business. We also do medical laboratory equipment and other similar sectors. Basically, we mill parts, you know, 20 by 40 by 22, so not huge parts. We do outsource most of our Swiss work, but yeah, I don't know if that gives a good enough picture of what we do. But yeah. How, how many people at your shop? Oh, sorry. Our revenue is about 6 million. We have 32 employees. 
How many shifts? Eight hours manned. We do run lights out on, I think we have three machines that allow us that capability. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And you said that you're not on the floor. You're not a, a shop guy, but you're third mm-hmm. generation. I'm sure there, you were dragged into the shop at an early age and it, it, through osmosis, you've got you've to know a thing or two about it. I was introduced to the burring department when I was 16. I did do some shipping and receiving. And then I escaped to be an academic, but I came back in 2013. I've been here ever since. In what was your degree? Let's see, I've got a political science degree and I also have an MBA in finance. Perfect. Perfect. Well, maybe you could rephrase the question where we left it when we were talking one-on-one and use that as a starting point. Okay. So we've had some pretty wild fluctuations ever since I've been here, not correlated, but uh, yeah, we, we've had periods of growth. We've had periods of recession. We're coming off two really down years and mm-hmm. we're growing pretty rapidly. So naturally as a shop in our position, I'm sure most people can relate to this. We're getting material being hounded on it, you know, 30 days later, most of our outside processing goes to, you know, smaller shops, some of them just two or three people. So obviously they are very, you know, watching their cash very closely. They're very tight on us as well. We are very thankful for all our suppliers and all our partners. I'd like to state that before I go to them. And then we, you know, we ship to customers who are humongous. So, you know, a lot of, some of the larger ones have pay centers, you know, overseas in low cost regions. So if we do have an issue receiving payment, they're not as quick to get back to us. So front end AP side, you know, we got people calling us all hours of the day as fast as possible. On the receivable side, though, it's a slow process. Uh, cash cycle is, is very long as it only expanded this past year due to, you know, the supply chain disruptions, people wanting to expedite things as they ramp up. So it's just a lot of exacerbating circumstances. So yeah, so that led me to the question of how do you deal with, you know, slingshotting back into growth mode from a cash flow standpoint? Well, I think, first of all, the observation that when you grow, your cash is going to be constrained to growing requires cash for some of the things that you talked about, that you are increasing your sales. That's that's fantastic. But there's a lag time before you actually get paid on those sales. But at the same time, you have those smaller suppliers who are not willing to extend the same terms as your customers. So there's a few things there, and I'm sure you're probably doing a lot of these naturally, but I'll throw out some ideas that I had that I used at Rapid. And Jeff, if you want to chime in at any point, certainly the way that I looked at payables was that the, I looked at somebody who owned their own business. I always tried to pay them as fast as possible because I knew the situation they were in and they probably have a range of customers and a range of payment abilities within those customers or or the desire to pay. So if you pay them quickly, and for me quickly was I tried to pay them in 15 days and they knew that we were always going to be reliable in getting them their money quickly. And that opened doors when you talked about expedite, you need something turned around. They would push somebody else out to take care of us. On the flip side, your internet provider, some of these big corporations, if, if they're if they're on the stock market, I had no qualms in, in pushing that out as far as I could before I got cut off. And so I tried to use them as a bank as much as possible, but not looking at all payables equally is the point that I'm making. And we've really had to work as a team to almost kind of, yeah, rank people as bad as that sounds, but yeah, we, yep. we've definitely kind of had to <laughs> make determinations based on yeah the people that we use the most often and people who are the most willing to expedite for us and to work on Saturdays and to kind of you know, bend their schedules and stuff. And yeah, we're really thankful for the yeah. people who do that for us. And yeah, we do try to take care of them as much as possible. Yep. 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 The other piece of it is that 
no matter how good you are at managing that, it's this sort of becomes routine and there's no stretching of the cash. So it's really important if you don't have the cash on hand to fund growth that you have a line of credit at a bank. And what I have seen is shops who use the line of credit to purchase assets instead of using it to fund their growth and or use it as a way to manage cash during the slow times of the year. And what that really means is you you're paying it down on regular basis. You don't you don't look at it as a fund of money that you you tap into and you sort of dry up because then you never have it as a source to fund that extra surge whenever it may happen. And that takes a lot of financial discipline. Yeah, I mean, we're I'm pretty much on a you know 14 day cash projection, so it's it's pretty tight. But really? yeah, just really having to watch it closely. Yep. And we've had to use a lot of credit cards for material purchases. I mean, we get you some cash. You have a line of there. credit with the bank? We don't currently, but we are working on that. Yeah. So, I always say that the best time to get a line of credit with a bank is when you don't, when you don't need, need it. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually wrote a LinkedIn blog post of a few years back. We had such a great relationship with the bank and it was due to specifically something that our one of my mentors suggested I do. And that is every month I would send an email to the bank and it, I included P&L for the month before. I included the P&L year to date and I included the balance sheet at the end of the previous month. And then there were a bunch of metrics which I reported on. They were consistent. The bottom line is the bank got that. And I also copied our accountant and our attorney. Bank always knew where we were. Every month they got something and they never worried about us. And because no other company does this, even though this was a large bank, we were known by, granted, New Hampshire is a smaller state, but the president of the bank in New Hampshire knew who we were because he had these emails forwarded to him on a regular basis. And it's such a simple thing to do. It sounds like, Nick, you're probably already doing a lot of these things, but sharing it with the bank, making them aware and particularly if times are starting to get tough you're acknowledging it and they want to work with you at that point rather than you coming to them at some point and saying hey i can't pay my loan and what can we do bankers don't like to be surprised so yeah that's a that was a really valuable thing so part of it also is and this jeff probably getting more into your meat and potatoes is you want to grow profitably and I learned this the hard way. At one point, I was chasing the revenue and I was neglecting the EBITDA number that we were seeking. And what I found is that starved us of the cash that we needed to grow. And it was really hard. It wasn't fun. Most of the time at RAP, even while we were growing 32% a year, I slept pretty peacefully at night. But that was a time when I didn't. And what I really learned was that there's a EBITDA number that you need to hit for your growth rate. For us at Rapid to hit 32% growth, we needed to be at least 20% EBITDA. So if you want to grow at 20%, maybe that's a 15% EBITDA number. I haven't done the math. However, regardless of the line of credit, and other ways of managing your cash, the profitability, it doesn't make any sense really to grow revenue without the profitability because that cash is what makes growing easy. And that really gets into trying to increase your profitability with the pricing algorithms at the coding stage or taking on new customers and 
getting the profitability that you desire. If you're, if you're not getting it from your existing customer base, at least getting it from the new customers so that they are paying for themselves in a sense. Does that make sense, Nick? Yeah. I, I mean, we kind of had conflicting ideologies within our, I guess, management group as, as we kind of worked through COVID. It was kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we have these machines that we're still working to pay off. Are we trying to, you know, fill them just for the sake of filling them? Or are we just going to try to be selective in this really slow time, even though there's really just not much there? And we found that we were decreasing the prices just to try to fill the shop, just to try to get something going. I mean, we did have the backing of several, you know, federal funded loans and stuff. We have PVP and ERC stuff. Uh, but as we, turned into 2022 is the prices of everything were just shooting up so quickly we had to just do a huge 180 flip and luckily we we weren't really any long-term contracts but you know we went from you know decreasing to okay we need to raise 15 Mm -hmm. to 20 percent just to even hit profitability and some of this stuff Um, and as i mentioned to you before i mean we're up you know, over 50% through six months, you know, July to December of 2022 versus July to December of 2021. So just the the rapid expansion and the increase in prices. Yeah, it's it was hard to keep up. I think just now we're seeing, or in the past two months, we're seeing the fruits of the price increases. You know, finally, all the stuff that we got out, you know, last summer for, with the increased pricing is finally coming back and, you know, shipping now and we're collecting on it. But it, it was a very wild time last fall as we kind of were getting the last of the old price stuff out the door and now we're seeing it pay so off. you had it sounds like it took about six months from the time you flipped that switch to when you put the quotes out you made the parts and you got paid yeah basically i mean last you know last february about a year ago basically we started to see headwinds okay our purchasing guys okay i'm getting all these letters like okay dear valued supplier, sorry, we're increasing 10 to 15%. He's getting letters like this every day in his mailbox. Yeah. We're like, okay. Holy cow. We need to like flip this very quickly. Uh, and mm-hmm. we, we really had to go back to the drawing board. We almost considered sending out a dear valued supplier type letter. Just, okay, sorry. We're just jacking everything up 12% or something. We decided not to go that route and make it really personal. We had our salesperson mm-hmm. and our ops and our customer service really take the time and explain it to people. We, you know, did spreadsheets and everything to kind of show them line by line what we were doing to justify the increases. And we really received no pushback. I think everyone understood, but just the the financial panic back in my desk was holy. This yeah, is that's a, a that's, wild increase. That's a beautiful point there because it's so easy to avoid confrontation and send out that letter and the chips fall where they fall. But I think I like what you guys did. It's harder. It takes more time, but ultimately you have relationships with your customers and having those sort of honest conversations are important to keeping the relationship going. And probably I had an old boss who said in times of conflict and duress, where you work through things with your customer, that's actually where you build the relationship and bond. And those, as painful as they are at the time, are actually really, really necessary and good for the relationship. I mean, in other words, in other words, don't shy away from them, run at them. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if you're familiar with Stoic philosophy. There's a current guy, Ryan Holiday, and he wrote a book, The Obstacle is the Way. So it's a beautiful thing. I mean, through NTMA, we were connected with a group called Culture Shock, and he always talks about being the buffalo. You know, you just charge right at the storm, and that's how you get through it. And we try to do that here. I mean, we were really built on relationships, especially through my dad. He was always really, he's always been really good at that. And it doesn't come naturally to me at all, but working on our leadership team here is trying to, you know, take that, take the reins and you know, work with our customers well as well. But yeah, it's a struggle, a, but I think it was worth it. I have a question for Jeff. Have you seen a customer who has a toggle for in the paperless algorithm for a new customer or existing customer? So essentially, 
the first time a customer comes in, you can check a box and that does something to the price. Personally, I would have the price go up maybe 10, 20% or whatever you, you sort of want the new baseline to be. Of course, you could always decrease it to win the business, I guess, and then and then start jacking up prices. But what have you seen there, Jeff? Anything? Yeah, great question. I was actually, I was going to ask Nick sort of where and how they were making these these price adjustments. So we can get into that after. And I think it's, it's heavily related to what you're asking, Jay. But mm-hmm. so for a while, shops or customers of paperless parts would reach out and they say, hey, we want to you know, change our pricing. We want to do account specific markups. You know, we want to mark up different customers, different amounts. And so I'd say, okay, like, you know, let's do it. Let's set it up. Here's how you do it. And I never asked why (laughs) back in the day. So more recently I've been starting to ask, you know, why are you doing this? Or why do these people have a higher markup or profit number that than this customer? And what it, it boils down to is either relationship like price sensitivity, so the, the account's willingness to pay. And then actually something you said at the start of this call, Jay, was the ease of doing business with the account, if you will. So you mentioned it specifically about collecting payment, but uh, in, in the line of work that you're doing, it's not just about collecting payment. Like when you get an RFQ, do they send you all the documents you need upfront? Are they sending you all the prints? Are they you know, including all the details in the prints, et cetera. Those types of things are also where where people are, you know, tacking on percentages to, to customers. And more recently, I've heard a lot about the new customer topic. Um, so people, it's not explicitly a toggle where, hey, we've got a new customer, but people want to identify, you know, how much new work or new customers are submitting RFQs. Who are they? You know, are we winning with them? Are we winning more work with them? So they're not explicitly saying, can I get a toggle for a new customer to tack on a percent, but they're asking to set up dashboards like, you know, show me all my new customers this past month, what quote numbers we sent them. I want to go review them, follow up on them. You know, I want to cater to those new customers. Um, and also this applies to the discount, you know, or the markup rather topic. People want to offer discounts to new customers sometimes if you're trying to win over new accounts and win their long-term business. So not necessarily you got to go give them 30% off, but paperless gives tactics to offer like discounts or different margins, discounts, and actually show that to your customer. So you can say, you know, this is discounted 10%, new, and you can call it a new customer discount. So that's very blatantly what you said, but but not quite. So in your formulas, you can choose to, if you're trying to start winning more profitable customers, meaning you want to offer a new customer at 10% higher price than you would an existing customer. You could just bake mm-hmm. that into your formulas and say, you know, if this is a new customer, that's not in my table, my customer account table, you know, mark it up more or mark their material up more or something like that. If, if that answers your question in pretty, pretty long-winded fashion. Any follow-up questions there, Nick? I mean, how often do you see people actually offer discounts to a new customer? Because for us, onboarding a new customer is generally pretty expensive. So that's when we've had to tack yeah. on the recurring engineering. And do you see people lump things into non-recurring engineering or is it just more of an evenly spread out percentage? So it varies. And I'll backtrack on the discounts. I don't think shops are or should necessarily be offering like these huge discounts. I don't think there's a way to do that and be and make money. I think it's it's literally a like a marketing or or psychological tactic. Like you go in a store, you see a, a sticker that says 10% off. That's sort of what I'm talking about here, where okay. it's we're labeling it's literally a digital quote. It you know has you've seen our digital quote, Nick, so you know what that looks like. And right. it looks like you know, discount 10%, or maybe you want to do that at a certain volume, you want to win their work in a certain way. Like you want to win the higher volume. Um, I'm, Jeff, I'm thinking some of the ways that you could actually manipulate this in paperless is you could have a new customer markup of say 15%. And then you could also have a checkbox for new customer discount, which does exactly what you said. And bottom line is you get roughly what you wanted to anyways, but it looks like to the customer that you're giving them a 10% discount. That's what I'm saying. And that's what we, that's what we do everything in our lives. Like everything you buy, 
was on sale all the time. So it doesn't make too much sense, but like we can do the same thing here or yeah. if you, you don't. So what I'm saying is, no, I don't think people are offering discounts left and right to new customers. Yeah. And, and yes, people are rolling costs into the NRE charge. Like you have to do like paperwork. Sometimes when you onboard a new customer, you have to exchange like certifications, documents, et cetera, all that. So yeah, you can roll that into an NRE charge. And then what I hear a lot of and, and see some debate on across shops is whether or not you're explicitly showing that NRE cost to the buyer when you send them a quote. So are you rolling that into the unit cost or is that going to be broken out you know, as explicit NRE where you're telling them you know, it's this and it's this much? Because I hear sometimes they come back and say, we don't want to pay for that or you know, things of that nature. So then people want to hide it in the unit price. And we do offer both, but it's just, you know, the decision is, is up to the shop based on how they see it. And I know you've mentioned it before, you know, cost of money. So, you know, kind of increasing prices based on whether people are willing to pay us, you know, net 30 versus net 90. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain to me how you kind of do that? Yeah. I mean, I know how that's done in paperless. I think It'd be better if I could talk about how this is done in 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 life and why. I guess I don't understand. Well, the business front, like the, so, the so essentially, the, I'll make it uh, simplified and paperless. But we create a table. We have the different payment term ranges that someone pays upon, and you pick a baseline. So I'll, I'm going to talk here with rapid as an example, and then you can push your own shops thinking into it. So at rapid, we said, if somebody paid in 30 days, that was neutral. And the multiplier was 1.0. If you paid in 45 days, we maybe multiplied your price by 1.01. .01. So we added 1%. If you paid in 60 days, it was 1.02. If you paid in 90 days, which we hated, it was 1.05. So the ability to understand the cost of money, and I should also say, if a customer was really difficult that we knew that they were going to lose the invoices almost on purpose, we had a, a custom field. But you put all those things into a table, and then you can either assign a value in that table to the customer, or if you don't, it's it's always a, the, the multiplier is always a straightforward one. But if you do assign one of the variables from the table, then you're manipulating the price to reflect how they're actually paying and what you determine the cost of money is. And by the way, I would never give a discount to someone. They, you know, they might say one net 10 or 2% net 10, and if you multiply that out, 1% net 10, okay, there's 36 tens in a year. So the effective interest rate that you are paying is 36% on that money. There was no way I was going to do that. So as an aside, that that's the way I, I look at that. Did I cover everything? I think so. And Nick, chiming in on that, yeah. what if you think about the standard or baseline markup, like Jay is suggesting, you can start to like stack on percentages is how I like to think of it. So incrementally mark up a customer based on X, Y, and Z. So like the first stack could be, you know, how well they pay. And then the second could be what's the length of relationship. Maybe you want to charge them more as a new customer and you don't as an existing customer. And then it could be what's their industry. Like if they're aerospace versus you know, some prototype shop, maybe you want to charge them differently. So you start to stack all those rules and maybe it's just 1%, 2%, 3% here and there. And that can be a way that, you know, you can, you can start to think about it that way too. And that also makes it easier to like experiment because you can keep track of all those things to see how they're affecting your win rate or hopefully not affecting your win rate. And then you can also keep track of like how much extra money you're charging in each of those categories or, or the, you know, reaping the benefit of for, as doing so. So I think that's a good way to go about it. And also just like really easy to break down into a table or, or a formula, like Jay said. So what we were doing before paperless was our director of ops, John, he basically made a spreadsheet that, you know, broke down every single process by the lead time, their terms, RAP terms, so that 
supplier and then how fast we were paid by the customer. So we had like a mm. float, the number of days mm. float times the uh-huh. cost of money prime rate. Uh, so we had that for every single process. So I mean, we so that would be time. really interesting to implement in paperless because you could do that. You probably don't want to data regularly, but you could do it once to understand your float rates and cost of money in there. Have you done that, Nick? Uh, I mean, I have a few examples over here in Excel, but um, well, yeah, I mean, we've no, done my, it. my question was, oh. have you have you taken your Excel spreadsheet and made that a subroutine in the pricing algorithm at Paperless? No, so that you, not yet. So maybe that's something, Jeff, that you can connect with Nick on. Yeah, absolutely. That would be... That, that would be a really interesting uh, exercise. Yeah, for sure. That'd probably be, you know, the, the highlight of my week to sit down and, and try to write something like that into paperless. I'm not even joking. So <laughs> I know John to tosses take... a lot of fun things at you. So. <laughs> yeah, he does. I'd love to take this a little bit different direction, if it's okay, yeah. Nick. And one of the things that as a shop you have to be really conscious of is your capacity because you can easily get overwhelmed and then you're late and it creates so much havoc in the shop. So I'm going to preface it by saying, I always think you should never be at hundred percent of capacity because there's always going to be something that goes wrong and you got to remake a job. That said, if you have the choice, then you want to win the jobs that are right for your shop. You don't want jobs that are dogs for your shop because they take up so much time and energy that and typically the smartest people in the shop. And one of the ways that we did that at rapid in machining is we divided all the jobs that came in into one of three categories in terms of complexity, simple, medium, and high. And we have signed different hourly rates to each of those because even though the numbers didn't make sense when you went from a bottom up or top down with simple aluminum parts. And you know what I'm talking about, the ones that come in and maybe they're two sides, three sides, and there's a bunch of them in one quote, they flow through the shop. You make money on those at a lower hourly rate, and you're probably going to have the highest profit margin, even though you can't prove that numerically. That's, that's the end result. And we were really disciplined every day we flowed the assignment of the number it was a one two or three and we flowed that through into our erp system and we were able to look at both the amount of dollars and the percentage of jobs in the shop by each of those three categories and forget the exact percentage of jobs we wanted in the shop of complex, but I think it was something like we never wanted more than 5% or maybe it was 5% of revenue. And if we were at that threshold or getting close to it, we would crank up the hourly rate. And if somebody really wanted us to do that, well, we would do it, but we weren't going to let that get over 5%. And it was amazing. I think at the end, hourly rate was almost a thousand dollars an hour for the complex parts. So we actually, on the stuff we didn't want to do, we were making money. We knew we were making money. Whereas shop owners who I've talked to, they sort of take those parts in along with all the good parts. I feel it's an obligation to the customer to have to make the complex parts, the dogs, the parts that don't really fit their shop. And I say, absolutely, but they have to pay for it. And if they don't want to pay for it, let them go shop those to other shops and send the dogs elsewhere because then you'll be able to focus on the stuff that you know you can do really, really well. So you never felt like you had to take some of those jobs on in order to keep the door open to receive more desirable work from that customer? So great question. So I was in that camp for a long time and, and I finally said, I'm not doing this anymore. This is too painful. I just looked at the stress in the shop from those jobs. Mm -hmm. And I said, I would rather forego all of the work and find other customers than to beat up my shop regularly. And so even with established customers, they have a bunch of other suppliers. If they don't like the price, all the other prices are good. If they don't like it, then send the parts elsewhere. 
And most customers will split parts out of an quote if they, they like you. And we can't get too cocky, but we got to remember that the capacity as a whole for machining is down and the demand is up. So there is a lot of business out there. And if you do lose a customer, so be it. You, if you work hard, you'll be able to regain them. The other is a lot of shops will test you with really hard parts or dogs. That's the first parts they come in with. And I used to quote those and try to win them and show them what we could do. And, and finally I said, no, time out. And I would call them. I go, you know, essentially these parts are bullshit. Send us something that you do on a regular basis and don't send us this crap. And they were typically surprised that you sort of called their bluff and they, they, you knew what they were doing. And if they wouldn't send regular package said, you know, well, thank you. But with all due respect, this is not how we like to enter relationships and we're going to forego the opportunity to quote these parts. And, and those were the exact words I used with all due respect. We are going to forego the opportunity to quote these parts. If you have parts that are more of a fit for our shop, and this is what we like to do, we would welcome the opportunity to compete for your business. Do you kind of see that as being like something that a lot of shops struggle with? This is really subjective, but I kind yes. of always felt like as a teenager watching this, it was a lot of donuts and handshakes and golf and really friendly yes. relationship-based <laughs> things. Now it's it's kind of like you really have to protect yourself and be on your game. Cause if, if you take some, you know, undesirable jobs, it can really sink you. I mean, do people struggle with being really, you know, having that really strict filter on or what do you, see? it is so hard. It is so hard to say no. Yeah. And particularly when you're trying to win the customer, you you're, you're selling. So the psychology of selling is you're trying to get someone to say yes. So when you say no to them when you put up roadblocks it messes with your psychology of getting someone to yes and best way to do it is actually to sort of figure out your rules of engagement before these situations come up and be able to have that foundation to stand up on and as the situations arise you are you know how you want to respond rather than reacting in the heat of the moment and essentially you're going to be more rational with this stuff than emotional there there's also ways that we had a lot of junior estimators so we had flags that came up when there were certain things that we knew we didn't want to do and we wouldn't let them quote those things so that's a way that paperless can create flags and it's different for every shop. It might be if titanium comes up, for example, it's an automatic no quote, Kovar, something like that. The knowing what you want to do is probably, it's probably the stuff you really like to do. There's stuff you will do. And then there's stuff you don't want to do and taking the time to understand that up front. And then coding it into the pricing algorithm. So either you're getting paid for the differential, the difference between the categories, or you are having a alarm in a sense set to ensure that something doesn't slip by or someone within your shop doesn't slip something in that they, they shouldn't. You see Jeff people doing that? Yeah. And kind of like what I'm hearing, listening to, to you guys talk on this is it seems like Nick, you're concerned with maintaining a relationship with the buyer and Jay, you're concerned with like rationally making a decision independent of that relationship. And I'm, I'm looking to protect the shop. Yeah. And I, I don't know that it's like, so it has to be so binary. I think you can, can kind of do both at the same time. And it's almost like there's a layer of each job that you bid on being who's the buyer and then kind of like a sub layer of, of what's the job that they're sending me right now. And I think if you can kind of like isolate those two, it makes it so that you can still maintain the relationship and like rationally look at the RFQ. And I think if you're able to do it, it like Jay said, in kind of a programmatic fashion where you have 
like your rules of engagement or some decision tree of how you go about looking at jobs. And you can go back to them and say, hey, I'm not doing this. Here's why. I don't see that as like getting in the way of the relationship. We have to do that as a software company too, where someone wants to do something and you know, we either we can't do it technically, we, we physically can't do it right now, or we've seen someone do this and we know it doesn't work out well, or it creates a strain for our team or something like that. And like, you can, you can tell them that and still maintain the relationship, I think. Although I know a software company and manufacturing company are quite different. I, I do think the relationship aspect is, is somewhat the same. Well, I'm going to chime in. It's, it all comes down to whether it's software or making parts, it's people. And the hard stuff takes away your best people. And you want to be really calibrated in what your best people are doing. Do you want them on the floor fine-tuning a production job so that you can become 5% more efficient? Or do you want them working on a complex part that in the scheme of things, minuscule revenue for your company and may only be a one-time deal and you may have to remake it. It all comes down to, I guess, protecting your shop is making sure your, your best people, your skilled people are doing the right thing. Where's your head at on all this, Nick? Like really good slogans just to bring out to the shop. <laughs> skilled people need to be doing the right thing. Because I mean, it's really simple, but it's so easy to drift away from just those things. I mean, especially as we've gotten really busy again, I feel like we're always just fighting fires constantly. So mm-hmm. it, it's hard to kind of find your center again and just kind of, you know, focus on what you're good at. So that's definitely something good to keep in mind. I guess traditionally we kind of have group discussions regarding, you know, kind of winners and losers, the different parts mm-hmm. that we're running and whether or not we should pursue them again. But I think as we shift to just making it quantitative and looking at it and paperless, I think it's going to be really helpful. And I think we're getting there to where it's just easier to make those decisions. We don't have an outside salesperson right now, but if we do have another one, I would like it so they can kind of just come in and it's really easy to show them what they should be pursuing. Mm. Because I know that's something that we've struggled with in the past. It's not really the salesperson's fault. It's hard to come into a situation like ours and really just, it's a difficult thing to grasp what we're looking for exactly if you're not a shop worker (laughs) yeah i i think you're you're on the money there because a salesperson they are coin operated and if you they spend all this time and effort on a customer or both an individual or a company that's not right for you and they don't get paid anything on it then they are going to learn to figure out what is right for your shop because they want to win. They want to get the order. So they get, because most outside salespeople have at least part of their compensation is commission. They, mm-hmm. they want, they want the commission. So the clearer you can make those principles, I guess, of your, your company in terms of the business you want to bring in the types of customers you want to be working with the easier it is for them to say no and not focus their time on them and and look for the right customers and build the relationships with the right customers. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's, it's getting the whole organization and getting all of our input regarding, you know, what we like in a customer and the things we struggle with and kind of, yeah, just putting it all together into an algorithm basically. Cause I mean, I'll I'll have opinions, but sometimes it doesn't match what's actually happening (laughs) on the shop. Because you know, I'm just sitting here in my Excel spreadsheet, and you know, I, I struggle with different things than what the people on the shop floor. But I, yeah, I think having a, a central hub to kind of collect these thoughts and put them numerically is yeah, extremely helpful. So, what, one of the things I loved is the Rudy Stahl, who is the individual who I bought the machine shop that started Rapid Machining, and he stayed on for the first five years to run it as the general manager. On Friday afternoons, I think it was, but regardless, he would have the dog of the week and he'd have everybody who should yeah. be in the meeting and he'd go over the dog of the week. And 
he would explain why it was a dog. And then we would try to code elements in that into our pricing algorithm at the time, which you can certainly do now with paperless, probably a lot easier. So that the, the beautiful thing is, if you think about that, let's say you have 50 dog parts during a year, and every time there's some little improvement in the pricing algorithm that comes out of it, think of where you stand at the end of the year. It's what I call the spiraling in to the perfect price. And you start on the outside and it's so loose and sloppy. But over time, if you're consistent, you keep the things that pop up, the one-off instances that kill you, rather than those being lost. And this is probably one of the biggest reasons why you want to use an automated pricing system is you can capture those things that cost your shop money and put it in there so it never happens again. Or at least if it happens, it's a conscious decision that you overrode that. That is the beauty of software and that you don't get from quoting in an ERP system or spreadsheet. And you may look at your dogs as a shop as a failure and they cost your shop a lot of money. It's I look at it as it's never a failure if you learn something. And it may be a painful lesson, but you're still learning and you, you've made something out of it. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something we've been working on is just, yeah, documenting the different problems we have and making them available for everyone to see. So yeah, it's definitely a good tool for improvement. Yeah. And a lot of it starts at the quoting phase. <laughs> something was missed. Something was ignored. Something wasn't understood. And you want to capture it capture it there yeah for sure yeah it's definitely a huge company initiative right now is yeah just documenting the various struggles you have so we can improve and something we'll look to do a lot more of this year airing of the what, grievances exactly <laughs> so thinking 2023 maybe we can look at since this is the beginning of 2023 where is mosey's going what's your plan for the year what's going to make it a win when you look back December 31st of this year? Well, honestly, we've had two years where we've learned a lot of hard lessons. And I think it's really just, can we get better at communicating with each other using the tools that we have now in place? I mean, we changed our ERP system. A couple of years ago, we onboarded paperless. We changed our accounting software, just a lot of changes. And I think now we have a lot of the pieces in place so now it's time to really make the best use of them as possible and really use them to help better work with each other, communicate, get rid of any you know, snags or misunderstandings. And if we do that, I think we can really onboard intelligently and responsibly and really hit the kind of steady growth numbers that allow us to have steady cash flow and make really good decisions and, and just proceed a little bit more steadily. And I think that would really help loosen the reins on some of the things I've had to put clamps on, some of the improvements that we kind of need in the shop. But I think with the cash in place, we should be able to make those improvements and really fuel the engine we have going out in the shops. So if we if we can just have a, a good, I guess, steady is the, the word, because after the past few years, steadiness is great. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of change and now it's okay. Let's let's reap the benefit of that before. We yeah, exactly. On. Yeah, wonderful. Cool. Is there anything else that Jeff and I can help you with? I think you've given me a lot of really good food for thought to talk with the team about. We'll we'll definitely look at some more improvements we can make into our quoting and pricing to better you know adjust it for our different pains. But yeah, it's just a lot of good thoughts and ideas, and yeah, it's been really good. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and. Your story, where you are, what you're doing, I think is really so common out there because there are so many shops who have made a lot of changes over the last few years and they recognize the manufacturing landscape is changing. They are working hard to ingest the new business, the growth, at the same time stay 
true to who they are as a shop principles that got them to this point. I mean, how many years have you guys been in business? About 48 this year. Yeah. 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 So you, you guys know who you are and it's, it's a continuous journey to be the shop that has been there all along and improve it and use technology to continue that journey. I like a saying from a, a guy, Joe Polish, it should be elf, easy, lucrative, and fun. And yeah. if you can do that and make some beautiful parts, then all is good. And you'll That's have the a dream for 2023. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, any parting thoughts? No, I think that was a great discussion. Nick, I would just encourage you to join in on John and I's next session and come in with some suggestions on what we can do in paperless to, you know, make any tweaks or modifications, you know, happy to help let you know what's at your fingertips too. And in, in, in case, you know, you weren't aware of, of some of the things that we talked about and how they could get done in paperless. So let's plan to, to get in touch and work towards that. That sounds good. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for all the support with all our questions so far. And uh, yeah, we will, we'll have some more for you. So it'll be good. Excellent. Well, guys, appreciate your time this morning, Nick, especially you opening it up and asking some really good questions. So until next time, let's keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a super day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.